welcome everyone to the. Just say it right. Just shit. say it right. Welcome, everyone, to the Just Say It Right podcast. I'm going to quit one day. <laughs> then we're probably going to have to replace you with a guy voiced by Danny DeVito. Do I sound like Danny DeVito? No, but that's, I, think, I, th- I think that's what they did in Family Guy. They got rid of Brian the dog... And they replaced him with Vinny, another dog. I'm pretty sure he was voiced by Danny DeVito. Oh yeah, I remember that. I don't think he was voiced by Danny DeVito. Let me. I'm gonna look that up actually. Kill time. Yeah. Uh. Dad, job. How, how do you feel about Trump's lack of facial hair? Yeah, uh, I, I feel like he. A nice goatee. Well, I, if we're talking about Trump and hair, I'm more worried about the hair that he does have than what he doesn't have. But also, regardless, what, what I the... honestly don't care that much. You told but, me to fill time, Dad. Yeah, so he was replaced by a dog named Vinny, uh, voiced by the Sopranos' Tony Sirico. Oh, and Andy DeVito. Their names both end in O. I was slightly correct. I will award you 0.1 points. Yay! I'm not tracking points. Well, yeah. So, today we're going to be talking about the boom boom. And by the boom boom, I mean guns. Yes. Well, obviously, I think the big event this week... Uh, politically, was the shooting at the uh, Republican baseball practice, right? Correct. Yeah, that's that's the one. That's the yeah, big like, story. Like, I, I'm just really annoyed by that because, like, every single time somebody does this, they're like, "Oh, every single leftist is like this." I, I hate it when people straw man like that. I don't think I mean, it's really you have... happened. Wait, there was that one representative in Arizona a while back who got shot in the head. But other than that, like, I, I mean, yes. Yeah, oh, what's her I, name? Uh, Gibbons, right? I mean, yeah. referring literally to an episode of this podcast... Brett, I think Brett was on about something in terms of feminists and how all feminists are those awful feminists and like something about that. I and just, that. I mean, it sounds right, but it sounds possible, but it doesn't sound right. If that makes I, sense. And I, I, I'm telling you, I remember he was talking about how just because, um, yeah, yeah, that. Because some feminists were doing this, the whole movement was responsible, and the whole mo- it was affecting the whole movement. And since that meant that that was the stance of the whole movement, or something along those lines. Oh, yeah, that debate. Yeah. I mean, that's it's not really what I was saying. Like, there, there's a certain point where, like, 
you have like a really abstract definition of a movement and people are like doing something like different to it and you just keep on going well that's not really what it's all about that's not really what it's all about well it is because that's what the people are doing but obviously that would mean that you need to prove that everyone thinks a certain way or acts a certain way hold on just so a i mean it's kind of it's kind of like a it's kind of a bad like starting point for a debate to like just go oh that's not that's not what liberalism is about or that's not what conservatism is about because conservative means this you shouldn't be be debating about definitions you should be debating about how people behave and act well and i think what i talked about um i don't remember if it was last episode or a couple episodes back about when we were talking about the the free speech stuff and, 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 you know, Antifa and all that stuff that's going on. And, you know, the point that I made at that time was that, um, I think that you have fringe on either side. Um, and what I said at the time was that I don't blame a movement based off of what rando college kids in masks do any more than I blame the fringe, um, you know, the conservatism on the dude that, you know, shot up the Planned Parenthood or, or whatever the case may be, right? Or the guy that walked into the pizza store. M- my point was that I think my problem with Donald Trump was that it wasn't coming, it was coming from the leader, right? It was coming from the politician himself. You know, he was the one that was at uh, at rallies saying, you know, knock the hell out of the guy. I uh, wish someone would punch this guy. Uh, you know, we used to be able to deal with this and they leave on a stretcher. And, and, you know, I could go out on a Fifth Avenue and shoot someone in the head and I wouldn't lose any support. To me, that was that's the danger to worry about. Like the the crazy guy that shot up to Planned Parenthood or the that, you know, held up the Oregon thing, or this guy that shoots, um, you know, this Steve Scalise and these Republican uh, aides while they were practicing for the congressional baseball. Uh, They're, like, they're crazy people. And what's important is whether they were incited, right? And I think people have come out this week and blamed because you know the guy who did it was a bernie sanders supporter and uh you know canvassed for him and and volunteered for him and you know people are blaming bernie sanders oh well he incited this and you know this is the the liberal movement stuff like that and i find that to be a false equivalence because bernie sanders never said any of that at his rallies uh he always promoted nonviolence. Uh, when it happened, I mean, I think it's striking that, you know, there was a case when Donald Trump was running and, and it was before he even won the nomination where there were these two guys that went, that found this homeless guy. I think it was in Boston, but they found this homeless guy and he was, uh, he, well, he was Hispanic. It turns out he was a citizen, but they didn't know that. Uh, and they just started beating him up. Right. And when the cops arrested him, they said, 
well, you know, Donald Trump is right. We got to get these Mexicans out of our country and all this stuff. And and when the press asked Donald Trump about that, his response was basically that, well, I don't know anything about that, but I'll tell you what, I have really passionate fans and they're really upset. And it was like, that's a really shitty response. And that's not going to discourage people from doing it again. Like, you're not really condemning it. Whereas on the other hand, Bernie Sanders, when this happened this week, Bernie Sanders did the whole thing in the Senate where he was like, this is not the way that we're supposed to do things. This is not, you know, violence isn't the answer. and Violence isn't going to get you anywhere. It's only going to hurt the movement. And so I don't think that they're, I think people are drawing a false equivalence right now that I don't think is fair. Uh, okay. I mean, to a certain degree, I think that Bernie was less violent in his tone than uh, Trump. But at the end of the day, like, even if you, like, buy what Bernie's saying, even if, like, even if Bernie, like, genuinely is saying that, um, like, violence is bad and he genuinely believes it, like, there's still, like, ways that he could say that and still provoke, like, a violent reaction from his group, I mean, sorry, um, from his supporters. Like, you could say, oh, I don't believe in violence at all, but abortions are, you know, like, murdering people and they're selling baby parts on the, uh, in Planned Parenthood and stuff like that. I mean, you could argue that kind of exaggerating um, like an opponent's positions would incite violence in certain ways. Well, and so that's actually where I'm strangely going to somewhat agree with you. Um, I think that, you know, I think that there was escalating rhetoric on both sides and there has been for a long time. My personal opinion is that the right has been escalating it for longer, but maybe that's just because of Obama was elected before Trump. You know, I don't know, but yeah, I certainly think there is something to, like, the example you used where all these Republicans were going around saying Planned Parenthood are selling baby parts and they're baby killer. Or or the way Bill O'Reilly several years ago did that whole uh, Tiller the baby killer, right? And then someone went and killed, went and murdered uh, Tiller, which was an abortion provider. And I don't think, I haven't seen that from the mainstream left the way, you know, I I don't remember any liberal um, politician or radio commentator. Of course, there's a lot fewer liberal radio commentators. Of course. Remember Lieberman, uh, his little podcast, Resistance, and he goes in a rant and he's like, our government has been taken over by scum, Russian scum. And all the liberals, even though it hasn't been, I mean, there's certainly, like, indications that, like, led them to, like, suspect that there's Russian collusion with the Republicans. But I would definitely suggest that most, most 
most liberal talking people have really bought into like the the Russian thing before it's played out fully. And because of that, there's there's people, there's tons of Democrats now that legitimately believe that the Republicans are traitors to the country. And also with like the health care bill, and I'm fine with this if they're like stating facts and like statistics, but a lot of it, especially over Twitter, has been like kind of inflamed where it's like, like oh, this bill is going to kill millions of people and stuff like that. And if, if you get rid of Obamacare, then you're responsible for the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people. So, of course, you know, me murdering you is justified. And, and it, I mean, once again, like, if, if those are like the real facts and statistics, then it's all right. But if you're inflating it or like exaggerating, it's a problem. That, that, that's something the left has definitely done. Well, so, uh, you know, we'll talk about healthcare at some point. I, I feel like there are two different points you made and, and, the one about the health care bill, I disagree with because it is a real statistic that before the Affordable Care Act, 45,000 Americans estimated died every year due to lack of health care. Either they couldn't afford the long-term medicine they needed for a long-term condition or they didn't get preventative care that could have avoided a, a deeper situation, right? Uh, because they couldn't afford it. So I think that's a completely fair thing to say that if you're going to pull, I mean, the thing about the Republican health care bill is, and even that it goes back to where we were before Obamacare, when 45,000 people died every year, it, the CBO score indicates there will be even fewer people with insurance than before Obamacare because of the cuts that it does to Medicaid. But we'll have a health care debate another day. I will, I do think that it is fair to look at to look at the way um, the way Democrats and and some liberals have painted the Trump Russia thing and painted him as a, as a traitor and that is probably going too far. I mean, I I don't I hesitate to say that because. I think my belief is there's a lot of evidence that there's something there and there's investigations happening for a reason, but we don't know exactly what there means. And that doesn't necessarily mean that Trump is a foreign agent of Russia or just that he had money invested in Russia. And he's, it's not that he's a traitor. He's just corrupt. Right. I, I don't know what the answer is or that it was somebody in his administration that's not Trump himself. I don't know. We don't know yet. And so people jumping to those conclusions that tr that Trump is a traitor, I, I actually agree with you. I think that is jumping too far too soon. Um, I But I think that the interesting thing about that is I mean, Bernie Sanders wasn't isn't really one of those people. But here's here's the point that I make. The problem with Bernie Sanders... And, you know, I, as I mentioned in the last episode, I supported Bernie Sanders in the primary because I agreed with him on a lot of policy positions. But 
I, there was an uncomfortability that I always had with, with Bernie Sanders in the terms of um, the, the stuff that he would say about, or the stuff, not even that he would say, but stuff that would happen among Bernie supporters were, which were these ideas of, uh, you know, a rigged democratic primary, um, an establishment that's working against you. And all of these things that undermined faith in the democratic system, those were pretty popular. And people were pointing out during the primaries that there was a, a correlation between Trump supporters and Bernie Sanders supporters in the sense that each one had a base of people that were upset at the current political system upset about corruption upset about media bias and they were just coming at it from two different ways and that i i did i thought it was much smaller in the bernie camp side but it was certainly there and it made me uncomfortable and i think that i have a hard time blaming bernie sanders himself for it because again i don't think that he used the kind of rhetoric that Donald Trump used. But I think the problem was he said enough things and he stoked enough ideas about rigged systems and establishment that he attracted the kinds of people that formerly would have been very fringe on the left and would have voted for somebody like Jill Stein if they voted at all. That he, he kind of attracted that those kind of people. And that was concerning to me even as a bernie sanders supporter and i think that um i think it was frustrating though is that uh, i don't know how to say this but i i just think what's frustrating is that that kind the problem is i feel like we don't know how to talk about um these concepts anymore that we end up talking past each other when we talk about different issues. So the Russia thing, for an example, when we talk about, I think like when I talk about the Russia thing, you know, what I mean by that is, I mean, I think that there is corruption there that Donald Trump has had probably had money, had foreign investment, whatever the case may be that the sanctions on Russia are hurting his business interests. And so he wants to lift sanctions on Russia uh, I also think Donald Trump has an affinity for authoritarians, and I, he's proven that time and time again, whether it be Putin, Kim Jong-un, uh, the guy in the Philippines, uh, Duterte, um, you know, Egypt, LCC. Uh, he tends to like these people for some reason, and so that's probably why he likes Russia. That doesn't mean that Donald Trump is committed treason. But that also doesn't mean he didn't do anything illegal. But it feels like when you talk about the Russia thing, it's like people on the right immediately, and some people on the left, immediately assume, like when we talk about Russian hacking, there's a lot of people that immediately assume when you say Russian hacking, that you're saying that Russians hacked into voting systems and changed votes for Donald Trump. And there's no evidence of that. When I say Russian hacking, I'm just talking about there's a lot of evidence from both public you know, and private sources that Russian hackers hacked the DNC, the DCCC, John Podesta, and, by the way, the RNC, 
and the French elections and separate NGOs and stuff like that. But the ones they released were the emails from the DNC and John Podesta. And I think there's lots of evidence to support that, but that doesn't mean that the election itself was fixed or was illegitimate. Right. But it feels like neither side can talk about that. And I think the same thing happened with Bernie Sanders, which is where Bernie Sanders would talk about the election, the primary being rigged, right? That it was a rigged system. And I think what he was referring to, what I took from that was the politicians are corrupt. There's money in politics. It's systemic. The Supreme Court is allowing, has allowed money into politics at unprecedented levels since 2008, 2010, stuff like that. And therefore, you know, wealthy donors and special interests have an outsized influence and those people all work together. They all go to the same cocktail parties and they didn't want Bernie Sanders. And therefore they said bad things about him in the media. They, you know, endorsed Hillary Clinton instead of him and all that stuff. But that doesn't mean that, I mean, Hillary Clinton still won more votes in the primary and she still won the overall primary, but there were Bernie Sanders supporters who took that and said, well, it was rigged, and they were literally conjuring up things like voter rolls being purged in states that would somehow disproportionately target Bernie Sanders supporters, and votes being changed, and illegal procedures being done in caucuses to hurt Bernie Sanders and stuff like that, and there was never any evidence of that. And so while I don't think Bernie Sanders himself supported that, I do think his rhetoric egged it on. And I do think that there's a huge case right now where we just all end up talking past each other and we can't agree on what simple terms mean because we all want to rush to our corners and it's become like a scoreboard, right? It's become like, and I've even found it myself where I found myself, I read an article about Antifa or whatever, college kids on this campus, you know, sending death threats to, uh, you know, a college professor or something like that and calling them a racist or a Nazi or whatever. And my gut reaction is going to be like, yeah, but what's the real story? Or yeah, but conservatives were doing it first. And it's like, I have to step back and be like, what are we doing? Like, why can't we just... Like, I want to condemn these things. I want to say this isn't what we should be doing, but it just feels like everything is a game now, and everything is like, you don't want to give an inch, because it feels like if you give an inch, you lose in this tug of war. And that, I think that kind of, I think that kind of atmosphere is what breeds things like this guy shooting at politicians or the guy that shot at, at um, you know, the Arizona congresswoman a few years ago. Or the guy that shot at the Planned Parenthood. Or, you know, whatever. And I think it's escalating. And I, I worry about that. I don't know what to do about that. Because I don't see Americans becoming more comfortable or more... I don't see Americans gaining faith in the American politics or the media anytime soon. And so. another thing is going off the healthcare is kind of a misconstruing of people's intentions. 
Um, I think it's a pretty popular narrative on the left whenever a Republican wants to, like, cut Medicaid or something, that they're doing it to, like, save money and uh, be, like, greedy and, like, serve, like, the interests of the rich. And, you know, they, like, cackle to the bank while people are, like, on the sidewalk, like, dying of chronic illnesses or something like that. But in the overwhelming majority of cases, like most conservatives genuinely believe that the entire system will collapse if they don't make cuts and then everyone will be out of Medicaid. They, they, it's basically like a, a lifeboat situation where you, you need to like save as many people as possible with like the means that you have available. And sure, like you might disagree and say that like their opinion is wrong but there's i think that there's a pretty big difference in like accusing someone of murder and accusing someone of manslaughter and the left is definitely most of the left is accusing republicans whenever they try to pass a new bill that has some kind of austerity they they do a, a good job accusing them of murder so I, I definitely want to say something, if, if that's all right, and that is I am thoroughly sick of both the left and the right because we have situations on the left where we have people who refuse to listen to the other side, people who have this fellow Milo Yiannopoulos and do everything in their power to make sure that he isn't able to give a speech and he makes sure that he isn't able to give his point. And I think that in order to be able to have a proper democracy, in order to have proper discussion, you need to have both sides at the table willing to discuss. And you can't look at the other side and say, oh, they're just Nazis, or oh, they're just lazy people who don't want to work. I, I am sick of this. Both people have gone off and said, we're going to get into our own little camps and only associate with people who have our points of view. And it, it just frustrates me. I mean, I'm at the point where I'm seeing a plague on both your houses. Because I just... Is it too much for me to ask that we get invaded by aliens? And, 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 you, and you think that that might be... that might be a joke or something like that. But I think, really, what humanity needs is a good kick in the pants so that they can just get their act together, so we can put across, put down these petty issues and just work together and have cohesion and discussion and not find arbitrary reasons to divide ourselves. Well, that's the Star Trek theory. Uh, yeah, I mean, because that's what happened in Star Trek, right? The aliens landed and all of a sudden Earth was united. But, you know, I, I, I would actually disagree with you slightly on the Milo Yiannopoulos thing. I mean, obviously, I don't have an aversion to having reasonable conversation with the other side. That's what this whole podcast is about. I don't think 
the point that I've made multiple times is that I don't think that Milo Yiannopoulos or Ann Coulter, I, they're not interested in having a discussion, right? They're, they come and they make incendiary statements and they just troll. They troll to sell books and to make money. I don't think that you should give those people a platform because the Ann Coulter and Milo Yiannopoulos never make dense, you know, detail-filled arguments. Like, if you're going to have a debate with Paul Ryan, Paul Ryan's a guy who I deeply disagree with. I think he has a gross view of a lot of people. But at least there's a, you know, there's a, an ideology that's behind that. And I think you could have a discussion with him. I, I don't agree with that. Like, I yes, you could totally discuss with Paul Ryan. But both... And Coulter and Miley Yiannopoulos have been on Bill Maher, and they have had substantive conversation, and they have had substantive de- debate. No, but when when Milo Yiannopoulos went on Bill Maher, he said a bunch of bullshit that wasn't even real. I mean, and, and he tried to skew facts. I mean, for example, he said about – he tried to imply that transgender people were uh, perpetrators of sexual assault. In the statistics he used, was two thirds of, of of transgender people are, are involved with sexual assaults in their life, but what he didn't mention was that yeah, they're the victims of sexual assault, not perpetrators, right? But he tried to use that as a way to make this point about why you shouldn't allow transgender people in a restroom, and he completely twisted a statistic. And so, I don't agree that Milo Yiannopoulos had any kind of substantive d- debate on Bill Maher's show. Uh, Ann Coulter, what do you mean, maybe... What do you mean she's... by getting, giving him a platform? Like, what, what are the harms of that? Well, so this is the thing. For a lot of years, because this wasn't happening... You know, Milo Yiannopoulos isn't new. He's, he's been out... You know, he's worked for Breitbart for, you know, half a decade or more. And for most of those years, right... Yeah. He was. Apologies, my internet crapped out on me. What did I miss? I, I was just saying We're that. We're talking I don't, about free speech. I was think I was just saying that Milo Yiannopoulos didn't have a good interview on Bill Maher. That he twisted statistics and he said outright falsehoods. And by the way, also made really terrible, racist and sexist jokes and got shut down by Larry Wilmore. But but then Brett asked. What what is the risk of of giving him a platform? And so what I was saying was Milo Yiannopoulos was not new, right? Most people only heard of him in 2016, but he was around doing speeches and being a troll half a decade or half a decade ago. I mean, he was a big voice in the GamerGate movement back in 2014, and which is ironic because he did a 180 from making fun of gamers to all of a sudden when he found a movement that was all about sending death threats to women. You know, he was on board with them. But my point was, so for a lot of years, people didn't know him because people on the left largely did ignore him, right? They didn't go shut down his speeches at uh, at college campuses, and they didn't protest to Breitbart and stuff like that. They did ignore him, and they let him do a speech, and they would say what they want and stuff like that. And that's what people are arguing. Like, what's the danger of 
of letting him speak and letting him do all this stuff and giving him a platform, show how stupid he is. The problem is it obviously worked, right? Like people didn't find it that stupid because his candidate of choice won the election. And there are a lot of people who apparently when they hear him speak, they don't immediately think this guy's ridiculous. They think, Hey, this guy's right. Transgender people are a threat. We should ban them from restrooms. Uh, or this guy's right that women aren't worth it in the workplace. They're not worth working with, you know? And so if you're a person of color, if you're a transgender person, or if you're a woman, or if you're looking at that, you're like, okay, you told me to be quiet and let him speak for five years because it would show how stupid he is. It didn't show how stupid he is. His side won the election. They took over the country. And so now I'm going to protest and I'm going to say something about it. And then when you say something about it, you get told you're a fascist. I think that's incredibly disingenuous. Well, I think part of the reason why Milo became popular and why Trump became popular is because people on the left and the right had the tendency to shut down platforms um, for people. And I think that there's a problem when, when you deny platforms, because basically what you're saying here is that um, lying and kind of misinformation is more effective than like telling the truth. And if, if you operate based on that belief, why the hell wouldn't you as well, you know, falsify information and use like the same tactics to your own ends? So it creates like this really toxic environment where everyone is is um, eliminating each other's platforms and basically just giving like, like the worst political dialogue possible. Well, because here's the thing. I, I think, look, you're not going to get any argument from me that both the left and the right have bubbles. And, and I've lived in both of them. Right. That's the thing I keep going back to. You know, I grew up in a conservative bubble and it, it took me getting away from it to realize I was actually a liberal and I didn't didn't realize it because, you know, when I where I grew up and the, the way I was raised, it was you were conservative. You know, we as we mentioned last week, the big problem I think we have right now is everything has gotten tied up to identity. Right. And and I think we'll talk about this a little bit more when we talk about the, the gun control situation. But, you know, it's not enough. It's it's like, you, you know, there's lots of psychological studies that show that you find the information that suits what you already want to believe. And for a long time in American politics, there was a lot of crossover in um, with the political parties. And ever since civil rights movement, let's be honest, that's that's really when it started. That has slowly undone. And now the parties are so identified with identity rather than policy. And so, you know, when I was growing up, it was like, we are in the South, we are Christians, therefore we are Republicans and we are conservatives. And there just wasn't another option, right? I mean, if you were a Democrat, if you were a liberal, it was like, you were weird. 
you were an outcast and vice versa. If you're in San Francisco, right? You're in San Francisco, you're a liberal. If there's a conservative in San Francisco, they're weird. It doesn't, you don't like, we can't even understand each other. And all of the other policies end up getting coalesced around the identity. You know, like I said a couple of weeks ago, I don't think that most Republicans on the ground, certainly not where I, you know, in my experience, actually care about the federal debt and deficit. They don't care about, you know, they do think that the government should be helping poor people, helping veterans, spending money on health care. But they end up supporting those policies because they identify as a Republican, they identify as a conservative, because the Republican Party speaks to the things they really care about, which is Christianity, guns, abortion, whatever the case may be, right? And, you know, so we do have this this growing divide, but I also think that it's not fair to say... Um, well, you should just open, allow an open platform and treat it all equally. Because I think this is how we got in the same place, or I think this is how we got to where we are on climate change. Because every time you talk about climate change in the media, it's always, here's a person who's a scientist that, you know, presents all this evidence of why climate change is real and why it's a threat and we need to do something. And here mm-hmm. on the other side of the screen, there's this person who is... Uh, works for a conservative think tank funded by the fossil fuel industry saying that it's made up or, you know, increasingly they can't even say that it's made up. So they say, well, it's not as big a problem as they think or it'll hurt jobs. Right. And so you end up being scientists overwhelmingly agree. Most of the world overwhelmingly understands that climate change is a problem. It's man-made and we have to do something about it. But then Americans, they think that it's still in a question because they're used to just seeing Here's one side of the story. Here's the other side of the story. And it presents a false dichotomy that these two opinions are equally valid. And they're simply not. So when you put Milo Yiannopoulos up on there and you say his opinion is is on this, on transgender people in the bathroom is equally as valid as a person, you know, a sheriff who says there's no evidence that transgender people have ever committed sexual assaults in the restroom you know, that those two things are valid and they're not. One of them is saying, I've looked at the evidence, I've looked at the data and there's nothing to support this argument. And the other one is twisting a statistic to fit a narrative that is really just a falsehood. But the problem is here is that you're like assuming validity on only one side. And what that does is it makes it impossible, absolutely impossible for the other side to to compromise or even like look at like the merits of your arguments it like pushes it back into like the whole tribalistic mentality so i, I, I don't that... think that's what the problem is okay let I... me just finish with this point here right. um the the more the more partisan the top acts the more the more partisan the followers will act so the more platforms one party pulls away that talk give like right wing opinions, the the more partisan like the the supporters of like the left wing are, are going to be. 
and I think that that's the case vice versa. So I don't think that it's it's fair to assume that like one side has all the truth and then one side doesn't have any truth. Sure, they don't have equal amounts of validity in their arguments, but there has to be at least you know a little bit of truth into what what they're saying or like what points they're making or some kind of valid concern there. Well, but I think this gets into people. People don't Come trust. On. People don't trust truth. They don't trust data anymore, because I think that you could have a discussion. It's perfectly valid to have a fear of something that you don't understand. I've never blamed anyone for ignorance, right? Like if you don't know the data, if you don't know the reality on the ground, like if I took a person in a vacuum that, you know, whatever, had grown up in a totally isolated room, and then you bring them out and you say, hey, what do you, you know, what do you think about climate change? If they don't know anything about it, then, like, I don't blame them for that. What I get frustrated by is you sit down and you lay out all the data and you lay out all the information, and then people immediately start going, I don't trust these people, I don't trust this data, because it comes from people that I think have an agenda, right and so it's really difficult to have debates if we can't agree on a shared set of facts see the problem is that i've been trying to say is that the people who we need to talk about climate science are ironically speaking not the climate scientists so we had this fellow this climate scientist who was supposed to go and talk to the pope i and he forgot all his notes. So instead, he gave the Pope a very emotional appeal, which is very much, this is a, this is our next great issue. This is something that's affecting the, pal the planet. It's a moral issue. And he gave very much that argument. And as a result, the Pope went and talked about climate change, and he called it the issue of our time. As a result, he brought a great many people on board that were never really touched or swayed by the scientists. And as to kind of get back to the early Myelinopolis point, I think that it's classic law of supply and demand here. In, in, if people did not want this, if people did not have a market for this, then people wouldn't be out there selling said product. If nobody wanted a fellow like Milo Yiannopoulos, then there wouldn't be a fellow like Milo Yiannopoulos. I mean, if it's not Milo Yiannopoulos, it's going to be someone else who's going out there and saying things like this because he's parroting what, the pe what his audience wants him to say so that he's telling them what they want to hear. Yeah, because... If it's not, it be somebody else. Right, but he's saying things that confirm predis. Look, we all start from a place of we all have a bias and we all have a predisposition to believe something, right? The goal, again, and that's why I say I don't ever blame anyone for their biases or for, for not knowing the facts. But when you let someone like a Milo Yiannopoulos, when you take someone that already has a bias... And then you t you inject into that someone like a Milo Yiannopoulos. Uh, 
they essentially infect, like they take those biases and they give it validation and it hardens it. Instead of presenting counter evidence, right? And there's studies that show this. There are studies that show, like, for example, if you take, uh, if you take people that have biases and, and you give them an article that supports the opposite of their bias, right? If they just read that article th- that has all this data showing that why they're wrong, why their position is wrong, they will actually become more solidified and they will not trust the article. If, on the other hand, you give them an article before that that talks about biases in sources and things like that, um, and talks about the idea of um, validation of pre-existing biases, they will be more likely when they read the article to change their mind, right? And I feel like this is part of the bubble thing. Like you mentioned, like he has a market. Yeah, I'm not arguing he doesn't have a market, but his market is essentially to tell people what they want to hear regardless of if it's right. And... I don't think. I mean, I don't think that's something we should be supporting. Do you think that's more effective than telling the truth? Yes, I do. I think there's tons of psychological evidence that that proves. Okay, but when you crossed over, when you crossed over from Democrat, I mean, sorry, Republican to Democrat, Mm -hmm. we what what made you cross over? Was it was it? Was it the lies and deception and propaganda of the Democrats? Or was it data that you looked into? No, it was data that I looked into. I mean, this is why I'm such a a wonk when it comes to data. You know, part of it's my my constitution, right? I mean, I'm, I'm an engineer, so I'm swayed by data, right? I mean, this is the thing. Like, my whole job is to look at data and make decisions on that. And so I don't have the luxury, and this is a discussion I've had with people that I work with, because I work with people that are conservatives and, and th- that don't believe climate change. And it's always so weird to me as an engineer that they'll be like, well, I don't believe climate change because I don't believe these climate scientists or something like that. And then I always have to, so the question I always ask them is like, okay, as an engineer, like, so for example, my job is to, um, is to write controls, right? C- control code, right? So electronic controls. My job is not to, yeah, I don't want to get too deep into what I do, but my job is to is not to uh, build the actual product anymore. I did it at one time. My job is to write the software that controls the product, right? So if the engineer whose job it is to build the product comes to me and tells me that there's a problem or that here's a feature of the product, right, that when you do this, this thing happens, or that it has this failure rate or whatever it is. I believe that. I look at that and I go, that guy's the expert. He designed the product. He worked on the product. He's looked at the data. I don't sit here and go, well, I'm a controls person. I haven't seen the data, so I'm just not going to believe you. Right? No, I look at it and I say, this guy, and and by the way, he's not by himself, right? He has a team. There's a lot of other people that work with him. I look at it and I go, yeah, I trust that your team has looked at this and has worked it out and has come to this conclusion based off the data that's that's available to you. So when I, I do the same thing in lots of things, I look at peer-reviewed data and I say, this is 
this is the end result. Like this is what the data is showing. And these are people that have, some of them may have biases. Let's not pretend that they don't. But if the data doesn't bear it out, then it doesn't bear it out. Like no amount of bias is going to allow you to invent uh, a thunderstorm that didn't exist or a drought that didn't exist. No amount yeah, of can, bias is going to allow you to invent a mass shooting that never happened. You can you can only look in certain areas and go other areas. Like I guess I'll use climate change as an example, which is like if you only the climate is getting warmer. It's hard to argue with that because it's real data. But if you spend all of your time and your energy researching man-made like um, ways that it affects the climate, and then like a tenth of the research goes to only uh, like natural like um, ways that the climate gets changed, then you're obviously going to have a worldview that you know like man is driving climate change. That's just an example. But if yeah, but like it's political it's a, agendas there. But the it's a made-up like example because it's not really real. That's not what happens. It, it's completely discrediting the scientific process and the idea of peer review. I mean, again, th but you're doing exactly what I'm saying, which is you're just discrediting the source without understanding really the process that goes behind it. I mean, I, mean, I, I don't feel... I'm not even... Okay... I shouldn't have used a real-world example because you're pretty defensive about it. So I'll use, like, a hypothetical example here, which would be if someone was looking at this cause of a murder or a cause of the death of someone and they found, I don't know, like a, a, a ruptured heart and they spent, like, 90% of their time, like, looking at the heart and, like, foregoing, like, the rest of the body a person could have died of, like, I don't know, being shot in the head, and you wouldn't know because all you're doing is spending your time looking at the heart. So it isn't, it is true that you can't argue with, like, empirical data, but there's ways of, like, selectively, like, pushing data to, like, push an idea forward. Nobody's, so nobody's... I think there's merit when people are, are, um, are kind of, hesitant to believe certain things if there's like a political agenda behind it yeah nobody's arguing that there's not selection bias but the point is that's why you don't rely on any one study that's why i get so frustrated every time you see a news article where it's like studies shows that eating chocolate helps reduce the risk of heart disease or something like that it's like half the time first of all it's not even what the study says but second of all it's like it's one study that maybe wasn't even studying that thing, had some sort of selection bias, maybe was funded by the sugar industry or the chocolate industry. Yes, never rely on one study, but that's not the case with the vast that, majority of situations, right? And even worse than that, that's not even the big problem for me. Like most of the time, nobody does uh, that exact same what, – what, what, I forget what exactly what it's called, but it's that thing where you do somebody else's experiment and then you see if you get similar results. Yes. There's reproducibility there. And, and that's the thing I think people really misunderstand about the scientific process and the peer review process is that people have this belief that, that 
people run experiments, that scientists run experiments to try to prove an existing theory. That's not at all what happens, actually. When you run experiments, the good ones, the ones that tend to get peer-reviewed and published in journals, uh, the goal of these experiments are actually to disprove the theory. The null hypothesis is almost always that the theory put forward is false, right? And only when you can not prove something false through multiple ways, multiple retrials, do you say, I accept the, the hypothesis behind this? And I feel like, and I feel like this is a real breakdown of our education system that so many people don't understand this, don't apply it to life. They don't understand civics. They don't understand the political system. And I think that this is what the end result of this is. And, and I, I, okay. I disagree because people, people who pay for those studies can also skew it and they don't have like the same appreciation for like science, but this is, this is kind of like off topic because we're talking yeah. about platforms here. And what I think I'm hearing from you, Paul, is that, you know, you are able to look at data objectively and, you know, look at the facts and like nonpartisan stuff. But other people aren't like capable of doing that. Other people aren't capable of looking at the truth and are more susceptible to um, like falsifications and that's like the most effective way so if that if that way is so effective then we need to like control it basically to prevent people from like falling for this and i, I, I don't a, I, think that like people, people believing that misinformation is the best way to to like push people to action is is a very good mindset to have because first it validates you putting forward misinformation to um to achieve your own goals and second it encourages your opponents to do the same well so that leads yeah. to just total polarization i don't want to say i don't it's not my opinion that we should control the, the flow of information okay i don't but you're think, talking about no 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 let me finish, let me finish. taking away people's platforms no i'm saying look Milo Yiannopoulos has the look. He worked for Breitbart. Whether or not he he doesn't anymore because of what he said about you know child molestation and all that stuff. But up until then, he worked for Breitbart. He had a platform. My argument was that you you know a college campus or a TV station is not obligated to give him another platform, right? Nobody's what I, I'm not arguing that Milo Yiannopoulos shouldn't have the right to create a website or his own radio station. And he will always have his dedicated group of followers, just like Alex Jones did, just like, uh, you know, Tom Hartman does or, or Jank Uger, right? I mean, these people all have their platforms and they all have their audiences. And I'm not arguing that to take those away. What I'm arguing is that you step into a different place when people that you previously trusted organizations that you previously trusted start to give them uh, an even bigger platform. And so CNN invites hacks like Jeffrey Lord on or Corey Lewandowski, who was on the payroll of Donald Trump 
when they hired him. Uh, or vice versa, Donna Brazil, right, who was feeding uh, questions, debate questions to Hillary Clinton, and she worked for the DNC at the time. That's what okay, it How is that not controlling, like, speech, though? Because they're still, they still have the platform, they still have the right to create their own radio show, to create their own, especially in the day of the internet, you have, in YouTube, and all these things, you have a bigger platform of your own than ever. You I know, mean, this isn't, this isn't the 1950s where the FCC controlled the network broadcast and those four corporations controlled the entire news cycle. We don't live in that world anymore. We live in a world where if Milo Yiannopoulos can go on, can create a, a Facebook channel or a Facebook uh, page and he can create a YouTube channel and get tons of followers like that, it doesn't mean that Bill Maher has to have him on to try to have a bullshit discussion with him. That's that's what I'm saying. All right. Well, two things. One, I mean, yeah, you're right. Three, I mean, three talentless hacks were somehow able to make a podcast and we're now on iTunes. Yeah. Zing. Um, Blade. <laughs> I, I have a question for you, Brett. What are the names of your state senators? Oh, um, uh, I think Patty Murray left, didn't she? What is the name of your governor? Oh, Patty Murray, um, Jay Inslee. Jay Inslee. Did you look governor. that up? I only know Patty Murray, though. Yeah. I mean, I feel like that kind of sort of proves my point a little bit. And just that in this day and age, People don't really get educated in civics. People don't really look into their governments and how their government works. Mm -hmm. I feel like voter apathy is at amazing rates. The voter turnout gets less and less each year. The only reason that Obama, I feel like, was as big as he was is because he did this whole yes, we can and change we can believe in. And let's be honest here, that's freaking catchy. You know, mm -hmm. well, and but, also things were pretty poor at the time. That didn't help, or that didn't hurt. No, it did not hurt at all. But I think that in this day and age, we're just getting to a point of political apathy. We're not enough people care about politics, and we're not enough people care about this kind of thing. And I feel like that you think in people care about politics today. I think that I think not that in people are more caring about politics than ever. Yeah. No, they really, because people aren't really educated on how their government works. People aren't really educated on how things are functioning. And yes, they may be political on the baseline level of, I like the way that it sounds when this guy says this, or yeah, America, rah, rah, go America. But it's never more than a surface level. Because if you listen to something like the Nixon-Kennedy debates and like the complexity of the issues that they discuss and all these other things that they put out there versus the debates today where you just talk about the most surface-level things and you're not really able to get into more detail. As a result, politics has, I feel like, in a way, become dumbed down. Well, I would say, if you watched all the debates from the primaries last year, 
I mean, look, this is going to sound biased, but I really don't know how any unbiased person could not look at the debates and think this, that the Democratic debates were far more substantive than either the Republican primary debates or the general election debates. They were also boring. That's the problem. That's people <laughs> didn't watch them. People tuned in to watch Trump tell Rand Paul that he had bad hair and Jeb Bush that he was <laughs> low energy. And that sucks, right? And and but so I think I, I agree with Brett that I don't think the problem right now is political apathy. I think people are more politically engaged probably than they have been since I've been alive, and that includes the height of the the Iraq war and the recession and the crash. I mean, people were really engaged at the time, and I think that's what helped Obama get elected. But um, I, th- I think, in fact, people are really politically engaged right now. The problem is people are politically disaffected. It's not that they aren't interested in voting. It's that they don't trust anyone or they don't trust anything. And that's honestly, yeah, and- that's the reason Clinton lost. Clinton didn't lose because people didn't turn out to vote. Clinton lost because African-Americans didn't turn out to vote in the states that she was targeting. And if you ask people, uh, you know, I've watched lots of interviews, lots of people talk to people on the ground, whether it be African-Americans, Latinos, uh, you know, people don't pay attention to the fact that Barack Obama deported more people than any other president of the 20th century combined. So Latinos weren't really feeling the Democratic Party too much this election. So they didn't turn out fairly Clinton. African-Americans didn't really feel like they were helped much by the Obama administration. They weren't interested in voting for Hillary Clinton. And working class voters in general didn't feel like either party cared about them. But working class white voters at least heard things they liked with Trump. And so they turned out to vote for him. And that's that's what cost Clinton the election. But I don't think that points to they don't care. It points that they don't believe they don't believe anyone. And I think what Brett is talking about is is it points to that fact that people don't trust what they call the elites, right? Which is essentially scientists and academics. People don't trust the media. And some of that's warranted. The media makes a complete game of everything in politics. And they shoot for what sells and what gets ad time and what gets clicks and views instead of real issues. And that sucks. And they're doing a disservice to the republic but at the same time, like that's like what else do you expect? They're a corporation. Their got their job is to make money. They're gonna do the thing that makes them money. And I mean say that the liberals but that don't is... trust and the liberals don't trust border patrol agents or generals. I I that's a strong right, I, I completely disagree I, with that. No idea where that came from. But what I was wow. going to okay. what I, mean, I was going to say is okay, obviously, you know, all of us have seen John when Oliver. You talk right? about like the elites and stuff, okay, correct. And when you say that, like, people don't trust academics or no, scientists, I mean, you're obviously pointing that at you know, right wing people, but you're not willing to like buy the ground that you're going to be less likely to trust a general over an academic when it comes to national security. I mean, what did Obama do? He removed a general from the Department of Defense and replaced him with an MIT graduate, a total academic. So it goes both ways. 
And I don't understand why you wouldn't want to admit that. Well, because I don't think there's any evidence that's actually true. I think you're making a straw man. But I think uh, my point was, I think with liberals, it's not you're a matter of... You're making a straw man, too. Plenty of conservatives trust scientists and academics. Okay. I mean, the evidence to support that. But regardless, I think the point Whoa, is... what evidence? I'm not... Okay. There are polls that show what I'm talking about, but I'm not going to get into it because it's beside the point. Because the, po the point that I was going to make was to circle back around, which is people also don't believe uh, politicians and they don't they don't trust the media on the left or the right. Right. And when you say like they don't trust academics, yes, that is a right leaning thing. The left doesn't typically didn't trust. Uh, I wouldn't say didn't trust generals, but they didn't trust historically the intelligence agencies. Right. Suddenly they're on the side of them with the Russia thing. But historically, the left didn't trust the CIA or the FBI, and, and there are when good the reasons Border Patrol for all endorses of that. Trump, and they say, "Oh, we desperately need more border border security." Well, but again, to the say that Democrats didn't that. trust them is is a completely false narrative, because Hillary Clinton Why? and Barack Obama because Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama both voted for the border fence in two thousand six that yeah, they built on the half the Patrol half the border. Endorsed Trump, they said that. He was I, the only one who could uh, secure the border. Okay, and the so Department of Defense and the Department of Defense and the Department of Defense other people. Stop interrupting me. The Department of Defense says that climate change is a threat to national security. So why doesn't Trump believe them? So let's stop playing these games because it, yeah, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I don't the care. Obama administration's department. Uh, stop! I don't care. I don't care. Why are you? Why are you so because you're trying to make an argument when I wasn't arguing with you're you. You're yelling you don't care. Because you're you trying to make an I argument when care. I wasn't arguing with you. I was. My point was to say that people don't trust institutions on either side. That includes the left and the right. They're different different okay, people that each side don't trust. People on the left. I just said it. They don't trust the media. They don't trust intelligence agencies, and they don't trust politicians. They don't trust corporations. They don't trust NGOs. And my point was that I was going to circle around to was Bernie Sanders fed into that by talking about the establishment the same way that Donald Trump did and festered this discontent with established institutions. That's the point I was getting to. You were trying to create an argument before I could even get to it. I don't think you're putting enough blame on the liberal side but because i don't think they deserve equal blame. i can't say I'm, there, I'm gonna say it. i don't think they deserve equal blame and lived on both sides i think it's complete bullshit to assume that both sides are the same i like you want let's let's okay. air out the laundry i think it's bullshit to assume both sides are equally wrong yeah i'd agree with that but i think you're exaggerating for one side, I, 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 I'm, I'm sick of the shouting matches. Like every time they turn on CNN or NBC and all these things, I, I, I'm sick of these 24-hour news networks and the way that they cover the presidency and the way that they cover the news. It, it, it I, I don't know. I feel like there's a market for 
proper journalism. I feel like there is a market for this non-sensationalized version of things. I think, I mean, every single day, well, every single day, every Sunday, I turn on my television to HBO and I watch John Oliver. And every once in a while on Friday, I'll turn on my TV and watch Bill Maher. I mean, are these people unbiased? Of course not. No human being on God's green earth can be unbiased. I'm, I'm just putting that out there. Not having biases is very difficult to essentially have as a thing. But I think that doing these kind of deep dives like they do on John Oliver, like talking about what exactly is in the healthcare bill or what mandatory minimums are all about or the auto loan bubble. Like those are important things that we can discuss about and that we can learn. Instead, we have Rachel Maddow spending an hour on the first page of Donald Trump's tax return. I mean, this is just ridiculous. And I feel like this kind of thing only draws into the partisanship. I, I, I miss the days when someone would publish an article and it was just kind of like the Philip DeFranco show is now, where it's like, here's the evidence, draw your own conclusions. Do, do you understand well, what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, I think Phil DeFranco has his own things going on but i mean yeah but every single time when he says his opinion he says this is my opinion yeah but i'm going to you think what you want to think tell me what do you think about this do you think it's right do you think it's wrong and he doesn't like very rarely does it call an opinion invalid yeah but i feel like that is part of the problem i i feel like we we were part of the problem with the political climate is treating opinions as valid as facts and, you know, Newt Gingrich proved this when he did the interview with CNN after the RNC last year, and they were talking about violence, right, or, or crime rates. And he was saying, you know, people are worried about crime being, you know, increasing crime rates. And I can't remember who the CNN anchor was, but she pointed out, she was like, yes, but crime rates aren't higher. The crime rates are down. They're the lowest they've been in 20 years. And he was like, yeah, but people don't feel like that's true. And she was like, well, I, 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 but it is true. And he essentially said, yes, but I'm a politician. I'll take people's feelings any day of the week. That's, that's the problem, right? We treat, we treat the feeling or the opinion that crime is higher, that crime is getting worse, as equally valid or more valid than the data that shows that it's not. I mean, I'm, I'm not disagreeing with you there, but I feel like the thing about with Newt Gingrich, and I can't believe I'm about to defend Newt Gingrich. Ugh. I, mean, I feel sort of disgusting. But, no, no, no. I, I feel like Gingrich was actually making that remark because the people 
what the people feel matter is because these are the people who are going to elect him into office. Yeah, I'm not right? arguing that he was wrong from a political perspective. I'm arguing that he was putting party and power above the good of the country. Okay, well, your example is, I mean, it's valid in that example because it's, it's one person, like, giving a falsehood and then another person, like, telling the truth. But in political dialogue, that's, like, hardly the case that, like, one side is only telling the truth and the other side is just saying bullshit that is just, like, conjecture or, like, falsification or stuff like that. It's a mixture on both sides. So the problem is, is when you when you take away platforms, you basically have to choose sides. I, I mean, I disagree. I think you can take away platforms from kooks on both sides. Like, I wouldn't give a platform to RFK Jr. Uh, about why vaccines are dangerous. Right? I mean, that's a liberal thing that has no basis in science. I don't know. Okay. Jenny McCarthy makes a pretty compelling case. Yeah, my ass. <laughs> and I don't say that because she was in Playboy. I don't say that at all. Okay, um, about polarization, Ummer brought up the, the debate between Nixon and Kennedy and like how it was factual and stuff. And I think the reason why it was such a good dialogue and why everyone was able to be civil and why people switched over parties so frequently is because the two debaters on the stage who represent their party genuinely believed that being factual was the best way to change people's minds and get voters. And over a period of 50 years, our politicians have lost faith that being factual is the best way to get votes. And that has led to very little crossing over and people having a lot of passion in, in the political sphere but using that passion in very superficial ways that are destructive to the democracy that we live in well I mean I would agree with that to an extent and I think Donald Trump is the manifestation of that in my opinion although we would, might disagree with that but um, yeah I mean I think politicians do tend to um, fight, do tend to argue towards emotional appeals rather than towards facts or impartial data. And, and there are things that, that prove or that, that kind of suggest why that happens. Uh, for example, the percentage of Congress members and politicians that are attorneys now is higher than it's ever been like you used to get a good mix of people that were you know lifelong civil servants or people that had worked in engineering or business or you know scientists or whatever and now it's just almost by and large completely attorneys and attorneys are more skilled at 
I mean, part of being attorney is you make an argument to win a debate regardless of what the fact is, right? Like, especially if you're a defense attorney, if you, all the evidence is showing that your person is, that your defendant is guilty, your job is still to put forth the best argument to get them, you know, declared innocent that you can, right? And part, so I think that manifests in people making emotional appeals. And I think that's one part of it. But I think the other part of it is, let's be honest, the real thing that happened after the 60s was that the two-party system aligned with identity and with culture in a way that it didn't before the 60s. Before the 60s and 70s, the the parties were aligned on somewhat on culture. Um, the Democrats tended to um, represent the white Southern uh, anti-civil uh, rights movement, and the Republicans tended to be the more progressive party. But there was some crossover because they were certainly uh, economically progressive, um, you know, racists in the South. And so therefore you had economically progressive uh, Democrats from the South. And you had, there were fiscally conservative anti-slavery people in the North. And so you had fiscally conservative Republicans. Um, really after the 60s, though, all that kind of changed. And we just kind of, the parties really did coalesce around identity and I, I you know I think that's that's why we don't have debates on substantive issues anymore because I, I think that again my experience has been we identify with the party first based off of the set of cultural values and then everything else becomes secondary and we just as you mentioned earlier we just toe the line of what the leaders say I miss Kennedy. Well, and I think the thing I wanted to point out, too, is that I think that a lot of the frustration right now and a lot of the, the backlash, and if you want to call it that, with Trump is that we've eventually hit the point where the identity has become a threat, right? But up until the 60s, from the 60s up until now, the Democrats took in minorities and immigrants and and stuff like that, and the Republican Party kind of turned away from that. Um, but, you know, the Republican Party tried to represent white, working-class Christian voters um, to some extent. But for a long time, there were still a lot of working-class white people that still ended up voting for Democrats for economic reasons, because it wasn't really a threat, right? And I think what you saw in 2016 was, especially considering the economy was good and there wasn't a significant foreign threat, you know, we weren't at a huge war at the time, that it allowed that identity of, um, that white identity to play a bigger part in the election, one. And two is that we're now living in a time where the white majority is finally being threatened. I mean, the majority of children born in America today are non-white. And so... I mean, yeah, honestly, that sounds about right. More importantly, we need to have a sick-ass name to give this episode. I have a feeling you're just going to call it polarization and be done with it. That sounds like a good name. 
Well, what name do you want? Uh, us and them. I might as well just call it I Love Us. I mean, that works too. Did nobody else get that us... reference? I mean, did you get my reference? No. Pink Floyd, man. Us and them. What does that have to do with Pink Floyd? It's a Pink Floyd album. No, it's a Pink Floyd song on Dark Side of the Moon. Oh, see, that's the problem. I hardly ever know. I hardly ever know the names of songs. I love the dark. Or I mean, I love uh, Dark Side of the Moon. I hardly ever know the names of the songs, though. Hmm, interesting. Well, anyway, uh, mm-hmm. I Love Us is from 500 Days of Summer. So. Oh, that, that, that explains what. See, I, I read the interview with Joseph Gordon-Levitt where he's like, oh, yeah, my character's a creepy fucking bastard. I'm like, okay, I'm watching that movie. Oh, you should watch the movie. It's so good. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. He's not He's not creepy. He's just, he is mistaken. Yep. But it's a good movie. Okay, anyway, uh, closing thoughts. I mean, I feel like we kind of already did them. Is there anything else anybody wants to say? You guys are awesome. Just want to say that. We should all start a band. Well, I do play guitar. I play drums. Yeah, there you go. Brett, do you play bass? Harmonica. That would be a weird band. If we wanted to do blues traveling <laughs> covers, we would be set, but... I mean, all you got to do is replace your electric guitar with a nice classical guitar, like what, what, acoustic, acoustic guitar. And then we could have a bluegrass band? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, those are in right now. Jazz band would be ideal, though. I mean, there's always I mean, a market for bluegrass, but not a market I'm interested in. Yeah, bluegrass. I really like... Oh, yeah, but there's tons of the Battle of New Orleans. It's a very it's it's a weird song, but yeah. it's about the. Have you heard it? The Battle of New Orleans. Yeah, of course I've heard it. Yeah. I don't know. Most people I talk to are like, "What the hell is this song?" I grew I've up never in Kentucky. Heard this I grew up in Kentucky. Of course I've heard that song. What does that have to do with Kentucky? It's like a southern tradition that you hear that song. I mean, I mean if you were from Louisiana, I would totally get it. Yeah, all, or the South, you... all the South identifies with each other. It's it's the thing. Andrew Jackson was great. <laughs> no, he wasn't. Well, I, I, I just want to say, like, just to wrap up... Um, you know, I like that we do this podcast. I find it frustrating at times. But I do like the idea that we get together and we talk and we get both sides. Uh, we get three sides sometimes, depending on what the topic is. And I wish, you know, I have experience doing this a lot because I am an, an ultra lib living in a red state 
grew up in a conservative family. Most of my friends are conservative, stuff like that. But um, there's not a lot of people that get that. And and I'm glad that we do it. And But that being said, even then, I mean, you see how polarized it is because even during this episode, right, it, it just felt like it, it eventually did devolve into one side is worse than the other and we can never agree on it. And I don't know how we get past that going forward. It's frustrating, and I don't know what the answer is. And at least we talk about it. But for the 60%, 70% of the country that they don't even know anybody on the other side, man, how do they get past this? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if you guys have thoughts on that. But... I mean, all you got to do is go on Twitter and put a Confederate flag as your profile picture. You should have a big, nice Confederate flag in your profile picture. And whoever swipes right is your conservative. And you can go on a nice date on them with Hooters, two Hooters, and like talk about conservative shit. And, and you be the liberal and they be the conservative and something like that. Hmm. No. That's one way to go. Uh, actually, this is kind of a joke. Uh, I actually have a friend who I'm not even kidding. He uh, he went when he moved to a, a new town or when he was on vacation or something. I don't remember what it was. Anyway, he did it. He literally did this where he he has a grinder on his phone and you know has a grinder account specifically to find new friends when when he moves into a new place or goes visits a new place. So he I puts a pro. Do what? He wants gay friends. Yeah, I mean he's completely straight. He's uh, well. Yeah. <laughs> he's straight, but like he makes a grinder account so that he can get, you know, gay friends, whenever he goes to a new place. Yeah. And I was like, I was like, I was like, that feels. I don't feel. I think that's catfishing, right? I don't think that's fair. Like people are expecting something different. I mean, I feel like he's just falling into the stereotypical thing of the gay best friend. Where it's like they know everything about fashion, you know. And they're like, "Oh my gosh, you're wearing white after Labor Day. How apparently, dare you?" Apparently, they're the best wingmen possible, according to my brother. Uh, I don't know. I don't think it was that, but I just thought that was interesting. But those are my final remarks. I mean, I do think it's interesting because. You know, you're saying it was the Republicans, Brett saying it's the Democrats, and I'm just over here saying a pox on both your houses. Well, I feel like that's not fair. I did say that there's stuff on both sides. I just... No, Umar, you have to take a side, because Paul's right when he says that there isn't... It's impossible. I I disagree with you. I think sides are equally at fault here. Exactly 100% equal. No, nothing. It, it is statistically and mathematically impossible. Well, there you go. You think Which be... one is more wrong, then? What's I think that... that I don't think it matters. I, don't... I think the difference between... The difference in guilt is negligible. Like, it's probably some decimal point or something like that. All right. 
I think that both very sides are at fault for very different reasons, but I feel like what we need to do is come together, bridge the gap, and try and work for the good of this country. I am of the very firm belief that if I were a politician, you know, I would try and go for the most liberal policies possible, and I would need someone who is conservative to hold me back and to make sure that I don't spend us, not spend us, make sure that I don't tax us back to the Stone Age. Because I'm pretty sure that if I were in any elective office, I would probably tax us back to the Stone Age if somebody let me. And it's through that balance of left and right that we can have a society in which we don't go too far either way. I hope that's the case, but when people polarize and have their own little identity that's increasingly being intertwined with race, it's going to get worse and worse. Well, I don't think it has to. And and honestly, my opinion is I, I don't think it will get worse and worse indefinitely because I think ultimately the newer generation is much more diverse. I think right now the battle... People people point out that the battle is over race, but the battle is also, or the the conflict between the parties, is over race, and I think it is. But the conflict was also generational. The old people, you know, the voters for Trump were disproportionately old. Young voters were massively more in favor of Bernie Sanders and Clinton. And so the next generation of voters, twenty years from now will have grown up in a world where the majority of people being born aren't white and diversity is part of it. But my concern is what happens between now and 20 years from now. Got it. I, feel like I, these don't, are all think that, I don't think that white kids in America are going to be nearly as, as gracious with affirmative action as you were. I, I think that's going to start tension. Well, my I'm hope is within 20 years, we don't need affirmative action anymore. But that was the hope really think 20 that, years ago. I mean, my hope is that... Stop calling for affirmative action 20 years from now? No, I mean, I mean because I don't want to have a whole topic on affirmative yeah, okay. action. I don't want to keep going this longer, but... <laughs> But affirmative action isn't about quotas, and it's not like it's literally unconstitutional to admit someone to a college or hire someone because of their race and because they're a minority. Uh, affirmative action is really just about striving to hit have diversity, and so I think ultimately it will always it'll always be there. But ultimately, my hope is that we'll get to a point where it'll be. Like it won't be something, it won't be a target that you're missing. It'll just be a target that you're hitting and you don't really have to worry about it. I mean, that's the hope. I don't know that we'll ever hit it, but. I don't think it'll ever stop and it will always be a source of tension. But, all right. (laughs) Well, on that note. 
Take us out, Armor. Fun for listening to this lovely episode of the Fairly Political Podcast. You can send us emails at fairlypolitical at gmail.com. You can uh, like us. Political podcast at fairlypoliticalpodcast at gmail.com. You can like us on Facebook. Our page is Fairly Political Podcast. You can join our Facebook group. Talk to us. Send us lovely little messages that are hopefully not death threats with the Fairly Political Podcast Facebook group majigger. And if Paul has hopefully listened to me and gotten us a Twitter, then our Twitter should be at Fairly Political Podcast. It's actually at Fairly Political, but there's nothing on there right now. Oh. I mean, just kind of tweet whenever our episodes come out, I guess. Yeah. Anyway, thank you for joining us. And we hope you have a lovely day. Peace.